Hello, Cyclocross friends, and thanks for tuning in to episode 224 of Cyclocross Radio. On today's show, we're talking criteriums. We got my neighbor, Rob Kelly, came over from the other side of D.C. to hang out on the back porch, talk about his wide-angle podium show, Criterium Nation. We got into a lot of the similarities between criteriums and cyclocross, a lot of the uh, just the, the 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 nuts and bolts of what it means to be racing criteriums in the U.S. It was a really fun conversation. We also got into some lawyer war stories, too, because, you know, you get two lawyers in D.C. sitting down on the back porch and you just can't help it. So that's where we went. Regardless, great conversation. I, I, I know you're going to love Rob if you haven't heard him yet. And I'd also love for you to go check out his show on the Wide Angle Podium podcast network wideanglepodium.com as i already mentioned it's called criterium nation and this is a great opportunity for you to help support that show and all of the shows on the network if you have not become a donor and we really haven't pushed it that hard in this past year because everybody's got so much else on their mind asking them for money to help support this network is low on on the priority list but it is important and we want to keep giving you this content and rob is doing exceptional work on his show i think you'll find it interesting and fun and you'll quickly become a follower of it so if you go to wideanglepodium.com go over to the donate and then you can choose who you want to support. And I would I would suggest, you know, looking at the newer shows on there, the the Criterium Nation, Nowhere Fast, and uh, throwing them some bucks and helping them out. And then we can keep on growing from there. Also, go check out the YouTube page. Uh, we are continuing to have cool stuff over at youtube.com slash wideanglepodium.com. Okay. It's episode 224 of Cyclocross Radio. We're talking in person, socially distanced with Rob Kelly. And we're doing that right now. Are you ready to switch to podcast voice? I am. I I definitely am. This also requires me to speak a little bit more authoritatively and a little bit slower. It also means that I can't start my sentences mid-thought because I have a tendency of talking to fill that space while I'm thinking in the normal world. Well, here, here's the thing, Rob, and, and this, is, this, is, this is your challenge. This is why I brought you to my porch today, my back porch, is that what in the wide-angle podium green room when well mainly me and the slow ride guys you know but also the media pit and we talk about criterium nation and the work that you do on your show it's like wow rob kelly super organized always knows where he's going always sort of has has a direction that he wants to follow with his guests it might change a little bit but he always knows where he's going to bring it back home and then even that's done you get into the editing you have your themes you have your ira glass-esque chapters it's all just sort of like there and you work hard on it and you put it out and it's just polished product at the end so the goal here is that you don't have any control and you can see my notes. They're excellent. They're very detailed. They're uh, completely blank. <laughs> and that's, that's where we're starting. So we just, we just get to talk without, you know, any, any preconceived finish line, which is, I know a difficult thing to do for someone who has a show about criteriums. That is A hundred percent true, but I think that I've been schooled on this a little bit. When I, about 10 years ago, I did a stint with the U.S. Attorney's Office here in D.C. D.C. does not have a district attorney's office, so the U.S. Attorney's Office handles all crime, including the misdemeanors, the petty theft, assaults, batteries, the the good old-fashioned drug possession cases. And the beauty is, as a prosecutor, you had a grand total of 10 minutes to get to know your case 
before you started with the first witness. And so normally you're calling the first police officer witness to the stand as you're looking down at the paper in front of you trying to glean the day, the time, and the street location of where the crime took place. By the end of your six-month stint, you are so bored with having to think on your feet that you start to create new and interesting ways to entertain yourself while doing this, what, three, four months before that, was absolute chaos. I had a similar experience in a completely different part of the legal world. After I stopped practicing law and my first job with Thomson Reuters was as a Westlaw reference attorney sitting in Egan, Minnesota on the sixth floor doing attorney's research for them. And at the first when you first hear these Westlaw searches are like, oh, I need a case that's this, this, and this, and has this statute in it, and, you know, uh, it disproves this regulation, and you're like, oh, geez, and you're, like, trying to put together all these complicated Boolean searches and and uh, and, and and going through it, and, and, and then the same thing by about five months in it, you – before they finish asking the question, you already have the answer and have pulled up the case that they need, but you need to actually pause not to make them feel like an idiot after they've searched for like hours not being able to find it. And you're like, oh yeah, that's a that's a tough one. Why don't you try this this here? Or, you know. Having made that phone call, I very much appreciate the pause that you and your colleagues gave me because knowing that now, I definitely was that idiot. Oh yeah. Well, the the other thing about that job, just to, as as sort of a, it, it was a good. It was good to work in a call center. It was a good life experience, and it gives you some compassion for when you call other call centers and you know what they are going through. Like one of the things that they used to have was was they would have this uh, sort of this traffic light system almost looked like a barber pole that hung down from the ceiling and it was all of these lights and it was yeah like a traffic light if it was green it meant that no one was was waiting that that there was nobody calling you actually had time to sit there and if it was yellow it meant that there was a little bit of a queue and if it was red it meant you're going to be on the phone nonstop for the next 4 hours you're going to hang up and there's going to be another call coming in 2 seconds later and it was just hell and at sort of the end of my year stint i remember it being winter in minnesota and at the west headquarters it's so huge that they actually have shuttle buses to take you from like the far reaches of the parking lots and it's winter in Minnesota and it's, you know, minus 20 something out and you're trudging through snow. And I just refused. I was like, I am never taking the shuttle bus. And I I made it through, never got on the bus, no matter how far I parked from the building. But the thing was, is that you could walk in and it's, it, there's just parking lot building. You could see the sixth floor and in the distance, you know, still a 10 minute walk away in this winter wasteland, you could see the red light in the ceiling before you were even starting your shift. And it was just there like a beacon. And it was, it was like, it was like the scene in Pushing Tin where the guy like is the, the, the aircraft controller is like, I don't even want to go to work and he just like can't do it and he sort of runs off. It's it's sort of that feeling. I learned since then they took away the lights. Excellent. No more triggers. <laughs> but I will tell you this, the last thing about that job, the other thing I learned, which was wonderful, as horrible as a day there may be, and this is where it differed from practicing law, at the end of the day, I would get up, I would look at my desk, I would pick nothing up from it, and I would walk out the door and go home. And that was revolutionary. I carry a lot of baggage home with me, and very, very small amounts of it actually go into my reload bag that I carry with me home from the office. Most of it's just emotional, mental baggage (laughs) that I trudge home 
up 16th Street, up 15th Street, you know, the steep part. So, you know, for those who aren't Washington, D.C. natives, there might be some landmark discussions going on here. We need to even out the Minneapolis-St. Paul stuff from the Slow Ride podcast with some other cities in the United States. Yeah, we're the we're the land of, you know, if, uh, if representatives drive through your neighborhood and they see what we learned today is that if they see a political uh, sign, they may be swayed to vote one way or another, and therefore we can't be a state. That's, that's what I learned today. That's exceptional. Yeah. My last, um, last, last thing about this West job and since then, the other thing that I no longer do that was just routine when I was practicing was going to sleep with a legal pad next to my bed so that when I woke up in the middle of the night with that thought of that thing either I hadn't done or that argument that just made sense that I could scribble it down and it would be there for me in the morning. Like the argument and thought that I just had about how weird it would be for your representative to be swayed by a political sign, but not all of the defense spending ads on the Metro that are perfectly acceptable. <laughs> yeah. Good now there us. was a, there were a lot of holes to poke into that argument, but it, it it was it was it was one that was out there today. So that was a long way of saying I don't I don't know that that's what we're doing here. We're going to tell war stories about uh, old old jobs. I, I I was I was also thinking it would be funny because I think both of us have this training of sitting through and leading enough depositions that if we really wanted to have the most successful lawyer on lawyer conversation, we would both just sit here, not say a word waiting for the other one to talk. That is my second favorite strategy to take people off their game. My first one is to ask yes or no questions so rapidly that you get conditioned to saying yes again and again and again. And then you slip that one question in there that you're not 100% sure if it's a yes or no, but more than likely they're going to say yes anyways, because in verbal, you know, oral discussions, people don't have that same fear that they have with a multiple choice test where you see C, 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 and then you're like in high school, you're like panicked. You're like, oh my God, it can't possibly be every answer. See, I have to stop and think. When you're just asking somebody yes or no questions, they don't have that cue to just stop. And they want to make, and they also a lot of the times don't want to seem dumb and they want to answer or they want to be clever. It's the people that are clever that always get themselves in trouble. <laughs> Is that true about bike racing too? Because I get, I've, I've I wondered about that. I get in a lot of trouble. Yeah. yeah, probably. All right, let's talk about criterium racing. It's so my understanding is it's basically cyclocross, except you do it on a hard surface. If you dismount, you're probably in trouble. Okay, but they do have pits. Both yeah. of them have pits that people visit periodically during the course of races, sometimes for legitimate reasons, and then sometimes because they're just off the back, kind of. But Tell me about this whole free lap phenomenon. Well, the game, the game, the battle is supposed to be between bike riders. It's not supposed to be between machines and issues that may happen. And I know, having watched cyclocross world that this year the men's race was somewhat determined by a mechanical wout obviously was up the road or up the course on matthew and he had a flat at a very untimely moment in time and that allowed matthew to catch back up and then he did what you know vanderpool does which is dominate the pit in the free lap is designed to get people back together if you've got a flat, if you've got an authorized mechanical, which we will learn 
tomorrow uh, does not include with a uh, with my episode of the show coming out does not include Matt little guy Alan eating too much cereal and throwing up on the second lap of the Stillwell crit. You know, if you've got a legit mechanical, you go into the pit, you get it fixed up, you get back in the race. So the race remains about the riders, not about the machines. I am kind of curious about how it relates to cyclocross because cross is very much dependent on the equipment that you have much more so than road. Should I just break in here now and, and, and save you from having said Stillwell instead of Stillwater or should I, should I have just let that go? Yeah. Well, yeah, we should really let that one go. Um, the thing is, as I said it and I instantly regretted it because I was just like, Oh, was that the city in Texas or was that the criterium in it's, Minnesota? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's when, it's like when you move here and you're trying to figure out where Springfield versus Silver Springs and they're like all hours apart from each other. Or how there's Mount Vernon in DC and then there's Mount Vernon in Alexandria. One of them is super famous. The other one is the intersection from hell where you have to turn left to turn right. <laughs> George Washington never had to do that? I <laughs> I don't know. He did travel back and forth through New Jersey with its bucket handle, you know, right-hand turns and left-hand turns, so maybe he did. I There's no historic sign that I've come across on the road yet that's explained that. All right, back back to this criterium racing and these these free laps that you guys just get to take randomly throw in there because if you <laughs> lift up the leg you can be well, in a crash here, here's yeah so th- th- talk me through that a little bit there's some gamesmanship here so th- so tell me about the 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 if you're caught up in a crash and then if you're kind of caught up in the crash and what what's the ethics of almost maybe and well if i fall down this actually has been a huge discussion among race promoters and among teams. But when you talk to the riders who are at the front end of the sport, you know, you get a lot of, well, if your race is decided by whether or not you have a timely pit or not, you probably weren't in the good position to win the race. So a lot of times it's used somewhat defensively by a rider who's, in a bad position. And, you know, like we've all seen it happen. The crash that takes down 15 people, but then there's a hundred people behind that 15 people. Look at any example of Spartanburg. It's just a race where there happens to be a lot of crashes and they neutralize the race. Something that I don't think that they've probably ever done in a cyclocross race, which is just bring everything to a stop. But, you know, you, you get restarts and things like that, that kind of screw things up. But, there is that phenomenon about riders saying I was in the crash and they clearly weren't. So I have, you know, two years ago back when, you know, criterium racing was happening on a weekly basis. And I'm hoping that it really starts up again. I went up to intelligentsia nine days in a row of either criterium or circuit racing. And there was a new course in Lombard, one of the Chicago suburbs that featured, uh, kind of an alleyway chicane from a downhill, you know, 90 degree corner. So you're bringing a lot of speed into a very narrow road. And I wrapped my arms around a uh, telephone pole, but I didn't crash. And so, you know, somebody's like, oh, great save, man. Great save. Yeah. The whole hundred person field passed me. And I start heading my way to the pit and the moto ref's like, what are you doing? I'm like I was just in a crash. He's like, you didn't hit the deck. I'm like, well, no, the telephone pole stopped me from hitting the deck. He's like, he got really disappointed in me and pointed out that if I didn't make it to the pit before he did on his motorcycle, that he was going to be upset. And so I took the free lap there, you know, put myself back together, you know, got back into the race. Flash forward four months later or three months later at Westchester, I get caught behind a first corner, first lap crash where I had to put my foot down because 10 people in front of me hit the deck, but I didn't hit the deck myself. 
I started riding again because in my mind, I had this whole experience with that moto ref where he's telling me I didn't really crash. And so it becomes a very wishy-washy, murky situation. But I would say if you hit the ground, if you get caught behind the crash, you know, take the free lap. Go and get yourself back up there. You know, I, I may get some hate for that, but it's just like, let's make this about the riders. I can guarantee you getting reinserted into a criterium field that's blowing by you at 30 plus miles an hour and you're at zero is not the way that you want to spend a minute and a half of your life. How many races were won by somebody who was caught up in a crash and got that lap? Does it happen? Oh, it does happen. Okay. It definitely does happen. It happens with neutralized restarts. Athens Twilight, I think three years ago or two years ago, real famous situation where there was a crash within the last five laps. So there were no more free laps at that point in time. And 40, 50% of the field was caught behind the crash. And when they went to restart it, they took all the people who were in the back, so the guys who were caught behind the crash, put them on the front line. Does this phenomenon of, of neutralizing races, allowing free laps, allowing the race to come back together, what's, what's the parallel or what is, is there any, any parallel between this and stock car racing? I love the criterium racing as NASCAR sort of like analogy because, you know, if you talk to enough people who are around the crit racing world, they'll eventually try to convince you that if criterium racing just borrowed NASCAR's example without really explaining what that means, that crit racing would be more popular than it is. And I don't, really know what they're talking about and I wish that I did better because like I think it's something that could be a fun talking point but I you know like I don't see I just don't see the the analogy as it exists right now because in NASCAR IndyCar whatever it happens to be oval track racing there's like three or four leaders in the entire race, like passing somebody in a NASCAR race is a real challenge. Crit racing is a fluid environment where somebody who's 50th wheel can get his or her butt to the front of the field with effort and with some smart cornering. It's not outside of the stretch of the imagination that there is that level of rotation. See, that that's I, from... From my experience of working out during law school in Lexington, Virginia, and having MRN on the radio on, you know, weekend mornings while we were in the weight room, that's where I got my NASCAR education. I I think that there is more parallels there because it does, it takes the riders who are willing to take those chances. It takes the riders who have better cornering skill who have you know more nerve to get around people who are able to do that and get to the front and i don't know i i've i've seen those those similarities it's also it's sort of that you get yourself when you're watching a crit the thing that it doesn't have is there's the whole math behind NASCAR of, you know, fuel economy and tires and all this kind of all these heavy duty calculations that are going on behind the scenes to make sure your your driver is able to finish, you know, and still have gas and be able to turn without sliding into the walls. And I'm assuming that's not a parallel to crit racing, but just as far as the the strategy of how a race is run for a crit, I feel like there is, there is some of that similarity and drafting and being in a good place and being economical is, is all the same. And as I was saying, watching it, if you're a spectator, there's some similarities too, because it's basically, you're watching a blob go by every lap and you're trying to make sense of it. And once you lock in it, it all kind of makes sense where if you're just like, casually watching either of those sports 
they don't make any sense, right? I mean, you're doing 50, 60 laps on a pro course. It's tough to sometimes know what's going on. Yeah, and sometimes you walk away for a minute and you lose your focus. And it's hard to somehow explain to, you know, to a listener what is happening because you can only see what is happening for that 30-second snippet that it's in front of you. A lot of the bigger races now are getting jumbotrons or they're, they're, they've got some courses that are set up like figure eights so you can see things on t- two parts of the race. You know, it is not as easy to follow the full race in a criterium as it is to follow a cross race. You know, I've, I've come to DCCX, I don't know, a dozen times over the last 10 years or 15 years that I've been living in DC. I've watched it on Saturdays and Sundays. And I love the fact that I can go and see the, the W or M section of it and then come across the way and find the mariachi band in the stairs. And I can do that in the same time it took Jeremy Powers or Kerry Warner or Rebecca Ferringer to get from side to side. And so you can really kind of get this grasp of how the race is working. With crit racing, it it is what you see for those 15, 20 seconds while it is in front of you. But as you dial into the race, and as you start to see how it's not about individuals, but it's about teams, you can really see how the race is evolving because you can see that hey it's the blue team that's up front all the time right now those guys with the green shoulders they've been screwing things up and like you start to see these patterns and then once you become super fan you can start to tell the difference between the guys wearing the orange kits you're like the really tall guy that's dalton the guy with the broad shoulders that's Tom, you know, and you can you can really, as you appreciate the event more, appreciate the artistry that goes with it. But like, that's where the NASCAR analogy kind of, I wish they explained it more because like, if you're a fan of cross, if you're a fan of road, if you're a fan of mountain biking, like you start to see the nuances after a little while. It's just not there at the very beginning. Yeah, and this is where, and I, I I realize and appreciate that Criterium Racing is is an American pursuit, and I I think it's great, but it it is still road racing, and you mentioned teams, and that's that's what makes it compelling because you have different teams with different built for different things and different motivations. You know, you, you have your powerhouse teams that you were talking about who are like, okay, that blue team is sort of controlling everything. So other teams, if they want to win, they, they have to rely on different tactics and you see it in a stage race, exactly the same way. And what is the motivation of the team? What are they built for? Are they a sprinters team? You know, are they a climbing team? Not as much in crits, but but you have these different things. You have these kind of, you know, I've seen them out there. You have these teams that are almost built on a bunch of privateers. And, you know, you look at them and you watch a couple of races and you're like, those are the guys who are trying to, are going to break way early. Those are the guys who need to push the pace because they have to get those big teams out of their rhythm and then when those stronger teams start getting it together that's kind of where the where the fun comes in and this is the thing that i this is the thing that i feel is weird about cyclocross is that when i watch cross on tv which is the majority way that i consume cyclocross is on television rather than being at the races i'm proud to say that i bought a cross bike and i'm going to be you know engaging in the sport again for the first time after, I don't know, eight, nine years, hopefully with a lot more healthy attitude this time than I did the last time. Cause the last time I tried to, to do it, I was like, I had a lot of ego where I was like, I am this road racer. I am a good road racer. You should bow down to me. Cyclocross people. When we get onto the little parts of road section, like, and I realized that there's way too much technique and skill and strategy and thought process. But this is where watching cyclocross becomes very frustrating to me because the cameras focus on the leaders. And a lot of the activity in a criterium is happening 
30 people back or 40 people back. Like the goal in a criterium is to uninvite people from your club, from your race. And a lot of teams will say their strategy is we are going to make the first 15, 20 minutes of this race the hardest it can possibly be. And without a doubt, you will find that after the first 15 or 20 minutes, there is this momentary lull where everybody catches their breath because you've excused 30 or 40 people off the back. And if you excuse 30 or 40 people off a UCI C1 or C2, you know, cyclocross race, that's like the whole field, basically, you know. So that's just the starting point for a criterium. You're trying to figure out what's going on behind you because the people who are behind you can really screw your world up in a very quick fashion if they get in front of you. So there is no guarantee that just because you're in the top 20 at any given point in time that you're going to remain there. So you want to get you don't want to be that guy at the back. You want to get that guy off your back. Yeah, and that, but that is the 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 biggest difference between the the disciplines in that I don't really want to see who's 20th to 30th in a cyclocross race because unlike a crit they're not going to win. You can't hide in a cyclocross race if you are the fastest person out there with the best skill you know, barring a crash or a mechanical, you are going to be at the front. It's, it truly is the survival of the fittest. And that's, that's who we see out there. That's who we want to follow. If you're talking about third through six, when, you know, Vanderpool is, or wow, or a minute up the, the, the road, then, then yeah, let's see what those, what those battles look like. But farther down, they're not coming back. They're just, they're done. And it's not a, as much as we try to force team tactics into cyclocross, it rarely, rarely happens. In fact, this year, I feel like at least with one race, it worked to the disadvantage of the team, you know, with the sauces and with Ellie and the way that he raced in one of the last, um, I forget the name of the series races, where basically his team leader was like, no, you all have to slow down because yeah. Ellie's got to win. Right. You know, and then... And so, you know, Colin Reuter, when he was on the show from Road Results, Cross Results, you know, famously stated to me that Cross is just a team and Cross are just people who wear the same jersey that you have to beat. In Road and in crit racing, more than anything, it's like the guys who are in your same jersey are the ones who are going to help you succeed. And depending on the course, depending on the day, it won't necessarily be the same person winning, which is what makes it exciting for me because I know that Vanderpool's going to win. Wout's going to win. Lauren Sweek is going to win. Betsema, you know, Lucinda Brand. These are all the names that I need to care about. You know, primetime. She's going to do a great job. Who is going to be with her? I have no idea. I've never heard of any of her teammates, basically. But in a crit, it could be Justin or Corey Williams. They're prolific winners. But Two years ago at San Rafael, one of the best criteriums in the United States, you know, two of the unknown guys from Legion of Los Angeles got up the road and they went one, two, you know, any given Sunday or any given Saturday night with the case of USA crits, somebody is going to win and it might not be the team leader, quote unquote. That, that, that's a good, that's a good place to segue into one of the things that I did want to talk to you about is somebody going up the road in a crit and this whole other factor that we actually did do it at DCCX and you, you'll see, I think cross Vegas had some preems uh, every once in a while, but preems and cyclocross are not a, not a common thing. You don't see them as much. They are game changers in criteriums. Right, I mean, what are the what are the most typical preems that will be offered in a crit? I mean, preems are cash. Cash is king. I mean, in your local criteriums, you'll get the famous sock guy sock preem, or you know, a pair of tires or something like that. But in the biggest crits in the country, it's cash, and crits can come with a lot of 
supreme cash. I mean, uh, uh, if you win all the premiums during the course of a race, you could walk away with more money than the winner. And it's just an incentive. It's just an incentive to be fast at that given time. What the important thing to understand is that even in the modern era or the contemporary era where there are live streams, there is, in the case of Armed Forces, an actual broadcast that's sent out on a, on a, a legit television station. You know, Criterium Racing is a live in-audience spectator event. So they want the people there at the race venue to be entertained. The preem is the way to do that entertainment. And it's a way to get the crowd engaged. Because Armed Forces is 100 kilometers. That's two and a half hours worth of crit racing on a one kilometer course. It could get dull if all you were doing is every minute watching a guys come around again. You know, Westchester 75K. Most criteriums are between an hour and 75 minutes. This is a way to spice things up in the middle. And yeah, they can be game changers. But, and I think I know where you're going with this, so I'm going to let you ask the question. So as a lawyer, I'm not anticipating it. I, I've worked crits before. So I, I've been on the stage with other announcers, with judges, with race directors and and here's this is i want you to put your 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 bike racing ethics hat on here for me and explain to me the ethics of the field preem so otherwise and this is this is the thing you, you we were talking about these these powerhouse teams that control races my feeling is it should be 100% on them to control the race. And sometimes what will happen is if a few riders go off the front, they establish a breakaway even to the point that they're threatening to, to lap the field. But it's gotten a little out of hand. Somebody up on that stage will be like, hey, we got to get this thing back together. Let's offer a big field preem, meaning that your reward for doing all the work to break away is that you're kind of getting screwed in that you don't get any money, but the money's going to the first one over the line for everyone behind in the hope that it brings the race back together. I call foul on that. And- I'm going to give you the lawyer answer about whether it is or is not ethical, and then I'm going to explain. So is it or is it not ethical? It depends. You know, the field preem can backfire horrendously on the person whose motivation it is to get the field to suddenly engage. Because, you know, the response is three different ways, typically. It's the, we go for the preem and then we keep on going as a unit. Okay, fine. Then you eventually catch back up to the breakaway. And that's sort of, you know, the hand of God tilting the scales a little bit. Then there's the other one, which is we go for the preem, but we know that those those guys are gone. So we're going to go try to get the cash that we can get, and then we shut it down. And that happens a lot, even without a breakaway. You know, like the field gets excited, they get their $200 preem, you know, everybody splits it among the team, that's the way it goes. And then the third way, and this is my personal favorite, is the cheeky move where the the field goes for the preem, but you're, you're like the fifth or sixth rider in the lead out, and you're just like, I'm not going to win this $200, but this is my springboard to the front. So as soon as guys one, two, and three sit up, I launch, and you've done a great job of bringing me back. The thing is, the rules are equal across the board. Everybody's been in a breakaway that's had a a field preem bring it back, and everybody's been in the field that's brought back the breakaway because of a preem. As long as it's not malicious in the intent, you know, as long as there's not bad faith, like, I don't like that guy or that girl, you know, coming from the person who's brought it together or the, you know, the preem together, like do what you got to do. It's bike racing. The goal is to entertain the people who are there and a bunch of people riding around mid speed with no incentive 
is not entertaining the crowd. So what's the gambler's preem? The gambler's preem is one of my most favorite things because it allows me to use the word penultimate and use it correctly. So let's say 90, 100 lap race, make it easy. The gambler's preem is called on lap 98 as you're going across the line at the end of 98. And it's for the person at the who's winning at the end of lap 99 going into that final lap. So it's a gamble. Do you go after that preem and ostensibly sacrifice your overall chances of winning the race? Or do you go after that and then try to hold it? Because that is, that is the boss move, is to take the gambler's preem and then hold it. I've seen it done a handful of times. It's not easy, especially if the field is all together, which it typically is. But you put enough cash on the line. You put a thousand bucks on the line for the gambler's preem, and the overall win might be fifteen hundred. Well, now you know you as an individual. Remember, you're pooling your money because you're a team. You as an individual, you grab a thousand bucks for your team, and then you've got Tony behind you who's going to go after the field sprint and and win it. Now you've got a $2,500 payday. That's that's going to cover gas and beer and a few other things to get you to the race. So the Gambler's Prem is just, it, it's, it's just, it's a test. How brave are you? And sometimes people pull it off. Yeah, I like I like the chaos element to it. The the other the other side of it is what you mentioned. Who are the who are the powerhouse teams right now? Or when when we start racing again in the U.S., who's going to be the you know one through five or one through seven? You're like, oh boy, that's a that's a team that that is to be reckoned with out there. And are there more than one? What's 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 kind of your what's your on? Let's start with the men's side. Who's your one through three power rankings? So the weird thing is, and this is not what you expect in the answer, is that it's hard to tell because we have this imposition in the United States of the UCI in road. And the UCI has its, you know, has its hands in in elite road racing, elite cyclocross racing, but it does not have its hands in criterium racing. So you've got these men's teams like Rally or Legion that are UCI Continental or Pro Road Tour teams that want to race big UCI road races. They also show up at Criteriums. So, you know, you get these domestic elite teams, which is the next level down, purely an American creation. And then you've got these D1 teams, which are the USA Crits teams, the guys who have signed up to be a part of the USA Crits League competition. And so it's a, it's a little complicated. But clearly, there are a handful of exceptional men's teams. Legion of Los Angeles is probably the most famous of those teams because you've got Justin, Corey, you've got this entire team that's built around field sprinting and bringing those two guys to the line. I mean, we, when... We like to think Lance Hayde it's the star of that team. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a the thing is is that nobody knows who's good anymore because nobody's raised over the last two years so i'm just gonna let that like slide <laughs> as i'm sitting here trying to think but you know so you separate out legion and then as a team as a purely team entity team cliff bar is exceptional and they race 180 degrees opposite of what legion does they will throw bombs up the road all day long because they don't want it to come down to a field sprint and then you've got these you've got some newer teams that just popped up here like best buddies you know michael hernandez and travis mccabe who's the u.s pro crit champion and eric marcotte who's won basically everything. These guys are an X factor. Nobody knows. And you also have to include a team like butcher box, which is just exceptional. You know, they've got firepower left and right. It would have been an interesting 2020 season to see how those teams plus some other entries were to fare. But then you look at somebody like Alex Hohen from wildlife generation. If his coach, I know him, he said, if, if Alex was to show up, and do a crit, he would by himself raise the speed of the crit by a mile and a half. 
per hour. How do you com- how do you compare with that? <laughs> it's just nuts. <laughs> yeah, and then what about the, the 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 women's fields? What are we what are we looking at for like strongest teams out there? As far as a pure crit squad, and I'm going to be super biased about this. It's Rally, even though they are a UCI team and that their focus is on Europe. They have Olivia Ray, and she doesn't know how to lose. She finds the front and she will win. And she's unafraid to attack. You know, she she told me once that she's either going to win or crash out. And that so far, that's borne out. She won the New Zealand Criterium Championship back in November in like a 600-meter sprint where she passed like five people in the final 600 meters. But, you know, they have the pro champion, Emma White, from 2019, Curtis White's sister. You know, so they've got a lot of firepower. But then you've got ATX Wolfpack. They're an exceptionally good team with a lot of young riders who are very untested. And I wish that the, you know, I wish I knew more about each individual person on that team. But those are the those are the two teams that I would, if if Roller Derby was to put internet bragging points on, I'd pick riders from those two teams generally. Curtis, if he's listening to this, is going to be very excited because this may be the first time that somebody has referred to Emma as his sister rather than Curtis as just being Emma's brother. So you're going to get you're going to get points on that side of the uh, White household. That's excellent. I so I follow them on Instagram. Obviously, the Christmas costumes that they had this year unbelievable they are (laughs) unbelievable i don't i i know that it's got to be driven by emma because i've seen some of the other stuff that she does with the the rally women and she just has this creative mind that i don't have but i want to know more about you're one of the uh one of america's first families of cycling you know making a bid for it there are definitely others out there so when when we get back to racing when criterium nation which has been doing great and i would push everyone to go check out the back episodes that rob has put out and he has done yeoman's work well thank you putting them out there without racing going on which is i know killing him inside every day a little more well we you know over on our side we had with cyclocross was like yes there was no domestic scene and it was horrible but we we had europe that kept us busy so we we could talk racing which i think people would have just you know gone nuts if it was just Bodie, zach and i talking about not racing for four months i don't know <laughs> i could pay Bodie some good money just to listen to his hot takes about pizza that's that's true. But when do we get started again? What's what are we looking at down the road here for racing? So it as today is developing, you know, we're looking at the first big race of the year on the Criterium side being Armed Forces Cycling Classic. That's here in Washington DC. It's two days of Criterium racing and it's just unbelievably good stuff. You'll get a lot of the best riders in the country coming to that. It used to overlap with the biggest race weekend in the country, which was Tulsa Tough. They've de-conflicted that. It's progress that's being made in the Criterium world that I wish that we would follow the Pro CX calendar a little bit more, that negotiation and de-conflicting. But <laughs> you're 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 basing that on on days of history. i i know that chaos ensued in 2020 2019 2018 but for 2021 crosses is looking good it's looking good for now so the first two weekends of june are huge i mean for tulsa tulsa's motto the city's motto is monday is a holiday and everybody comes out for the three days of racing i mean the first night ends with fireworks like literal fireworks and then second day ends at the sound pony which Everybody knows is the biggest party in all of bike racing. And the third day's chaos on Crybaby Hill. If you haven't seen it, literally Google it. It's insane. It's a wall of noise. But a lot of the season has been built around this idea that 
we're gonna we're gonna hedge our bets with June, and then we're gonna go heavy in July and August, and that's where things have started to really heat up because USA Crits has a race every single weekend in July and August. Basically, you've got Tour of America's Dairyland, eleven days of Criterium Racing in Milwaukee, Intelligentsia, nine days in Chicago, and then St. Louis has Gateway Cup, which is just after Speed Week, which is down in the southeastern United States. A lot of time spent in the Midwest. A lot of time spent with trying to figure out whether or not deep dish pizza or Chicago thin crust pizza is the best. And we all know that Prevel, whatever that is that they have in St. Louis, is terrible. But, you know, there is there is this problem, and it's a great problem. We've got so much racing. And it's over such a short period of time because normally it starts in March. So there's so much racing that's going to be happening. A lot of it is live streamed now. USA Crits TV is uh, it. It has in the past been a paywall, but it's a small price to pay for what is legitimately 20 days of racing between the men and the women. You know, like women's race at seven o'clock men's race at nine o'clock on you know like on a saturday night depending on the time zone so if you're bored and you still are you know haven't been vaccinated and you don't want to go out like this is a perfect way to spend your time and you see armed forces also televised the pro road nationals is televised like we are getting so much progress so many great things are happening and it's just the big challenge now and this is my job so it's a great challenge to face is creating a unified story. Yes. That's where I'm following in, in your example of creating a unified story during the entire course of the year about these teams. So it's not just about one-offs. You know, some of these teams are next level social media PR programs. You know, they hire incredible photographers like Bruce Buckley or Snowy Mountain or Patrick Daly to tell their stories. And those guys and and women do just the best work possible. I love photography and cycling. It is way superior to video as far as catching the raw emotion and passion. But there is a challenge when it comes down to figuring out who's winning the year. Because you can tell who wins the day, but who's winning the year, that's the big issue. And that's the storytelling that we've failed so far to do, which is why I have humbly put my name forward as the storyteller for Criterium Racing here. I look forward to your power rankings. That's going to be tough because like, <laughs> I've been thinking hard about this one. That's going to be really tough, but that's definitely in my wheelhouse. Fantastic. Can we talk about Carrie Warner? We can talk about Gary Warner, sure. Because this is untapped territory. There has always been a crossover between road racing and cyclocross. And I feel like the the Matthew Vanderpools and the Wout Van Arts and Marianne Vosses of the world, you know, these exceptional uber talents of humans who go back and forth between all the disciplines are trying to tell us that you should engage in all the disciplines. A bike is a bike. Race it. Race it as hard as you can and love and embrace everything about the sport. No more tribalism, you know, with the exception of maybe BMX because I don't know. It's weird. They've got those full face helmets. I, I just can't get into it yet, but I'll try. So, Kerry Warner is obviously a cyclocross, you know, uber talent here in the United States, but he's also signed up to race uh, crits this year with Project Echelon. Uh, if you guys haven't heard about Project Echelon, they've got this program where they're marrying up athletes with veterans in order to equip, empower, and motivate veterans to re-engage in life, deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, give them tools to do good things. So Kerry signed up to race crits with them. The question is why? Why is he doing this? I know it's a great idea. I'm all about it. Why is he doing this? Somebody joked with me this week. He's doing it because he gets bored in the summer. I don't know if that's true. I'd love to get him on the show to ask. But I can't think of a bike rider who goes the other direction. So you've got tons of great cross racers who come and race crits. You know, you can think of Katie, Katie Compton. 
She'll show up and race with Mellow Mushroom, Laura Van Gilder's team, time and again. And Ellen Van Noble, or Ellen Noble, Ellen Van Noble. I don't know who she That's is. That's fantastic. If she moves to Belgium, she should change her name to that. Yeah, she would instantly go up the power rankings. I think the algorithm takes the Vaughn into consideration. But, like, I can't think of a crit racer who hangs up the, you know, 808s in August or September and then jumps into cyclocross. Why not? Because there's gravel. <sighs> How long do we have in this podcast that I can go into my gravel tirade rant yeah, discussion? I was, it's funny because I, I I think you're right. I was I was if you were going to go the other way, I already had my my examples, you know, locked and loaded from Tim Johnson and Jeremy Powers, the whole Saturn team, the McCormicks. You know, there was so much road racing to cyclocross and, and, and back again, but most of them, you know, at least for powers and, and, and Timmy started on, on mountain bikes and worked their, worked their way from there. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't think on that. Maybe somebody knows a, a good, good example. Well, that's why the podcast exists so that we can crowdsource ideas. Yeah. Do you remember what it was like in the world before Google? Like if you had a question about who starred in a movie, like it was just chaos because you would all just sit there around the dinner table going, well, who starred in that and, movie? And talk to each other was hell. Yeah. And then you'd have to call some random person because you knew he or she had the answers to all the questions. Here's something that I was thinking about while you were talking about where the crit schedule was located. And you said it's a lot in the Midwest. So there's been a lot of hand-wringing over the Pro CX calendar because it is predominantly East Coast. And, you know, we get into Ohio and uh, Indiana and then, but it's basically mostly East, right? So people are like, it's not fair, which is, I agree with. There, There should be some West Coast races. But then if we look at cycling, U.S. cycling holistically, you have cross that has sort of landed in this East Coast, Midwest East Coast region. It looks like crits have a huge presence in the Midwest. If you look at your major mountain biking over the years, it's California, Colorado, Epic Rides, all mountain, all West Coast. So they have that portion of the of the country taken care of. And then gravel is kind of this blanket that goes over the whole continent. So I, I think that's the way that we need to look at at cycling, that then it is it is equally covered throughout the country. Is that just complete crap? No. No, it's not complete crap it's not even partially crap um i've been thinking about this we have the fourth largest landmass in the world as far as a country is concerned okay if you take out alaska that drops us down you know there's uh, apparently there's a vibrant cross scene in alaska i've, I've heard there is cross racing for sure yeah. yeah and you know we've got the third largest population in the world behind india and china and we've got all these people, we've got all these opportunities, we've got so many sports. I mean, how many parks are there in the country that have got soccer fields? Um, but if you look at Belgium, France, Spain, the Netherlands, Italy, Germany, like the, the actual landmass that those occupy is, is a very small chunk compared to the east coast of the United States, for example. And you can do a ton of racing, as as you know, you've pointed out numerous times in Belgium. Every rider in Belgium can get to a race within three hours of driving. That's hard to do on the roadside. And what complicates things with these crits? Crits are not yet there with cyclocross as far as being an arms race and having equipment, equipment, equipment. But it is incredibly hard to travel to a crit now in the disc brake era with just one bike. You know, SRAM does a great job with neutral support for a lot of events, you know, so you don't necessarily have to bring a spare wheel. But like, if you look at the PRT calendar, you have to move seven, eight, nine, ten 10 guys or girls from one side of the country to the other all the time. 
you go from Aniston, Alabama, the Sunny King Crit, all the way to Boise for the Twilight Criterium within a week. It's that's that's hard. That's hard to do. And I think, and I've talked to Tom Gibbons from Automatic Racing about this, about creating regionalization, drawing in the talent into a smaller area. And he's like, that's fine, but it would be, you know, Guten Plan in the Southeast. I'd be in New Jersey. Justin and Corey would be on the West Coast. Like, we come together in these top-level races, and we just got to do it. But that's why USA Crits is special, because it's 14 men's teams, 10 women's teams who buy into the system and who share marketing revenue, share live stream feeds, share, you know, all of these theories together for 10, 12 events during the course of the year. And that is eminently manageable. I don't know how long the ProCX calendar is or how many stops it has, but, you know, when you push it beyond 10 or 11 or 12 stops, it becomes logistically a nightmare. And, you know, you look at the 2019 ButcherBox men's team, they won... USA crits because they proved that they could get their riders to the races. That was their win, getting the guys to the races. And then they went off and did what they needed to do. You know, on the women's side, you know, I don't want to say it like this, but Lindsay, you know, Lindsay Goldman's team, Superman, Hoggins Berman, they effectively lost that competition because they couldn't get the riders to the races as well as Colavita could. You know, you had Harriet Owen and Starla Tedegren who just kept winning, kept winning, kept winning. That's why they ended up first and second in the overall competition. Colavita didn't put a person on the podium in the overall competition on the women's side, but they won because they kept putting six women on the line every single time. And it's a, it is a money thing. There's a lot of money that has to go into crit racing because you're moving teams, not just individuals. I'd love to know what, you know, um, and I'm, I, T-Bex, is that, is that how she's called on the media pit? So, so many names. <laughs> yeah. You know, like she and, and her teammate Carrie, you know, like they're, how much does it cost to keep them going? You know, multiply that by 12 because that's a men's and a women's team for USA Crits. Yeah. It's, it's also, it's, it's keeping them going and then keeping them going it just we're coming up on an hour and this is another three hours on the pro versus elite versus the ability to make this a career and at the same time from my point of view and i think from yours as well i i hear the the regional approach and cyclocross a lot as well and you were talking about how good the pro cx calendar looked that was kind of the philosophy four or five years ago where you had two and even three competing UCI races on the same date because it was to make it more fair and people in different regions. And you can call me selfish. I hated it, hated it. I wanted the best of the best in the same place without anywhere else to go. So they had to race against each other week after week. That's, Do that's not dilute the talent, right? It's, there's not enough of it to start yeah. with. Especially on the women's side in criterium raising, Steve Cullen, one of the former owners of ButcherBox, told me that he could have built three men's teams with all the resumes he got sent to him one year. And he fought and fought and fought to put together six women on the team because they are, it's a, it's a buyer's market for the riders getting spots on these criterium teams for the women. And so you see these very interesting combinations of people getting brought together because suddenly they can get brought together. It's tough. It, it's it's a whole tough thing in that that happens here. And then at least I've seen it on the mountain bike side where it's complete opposite, where I just know from several being in a team tent at the end of the season on the World Cup mountain bike and every American racer coming through certain tents, basically like applying for jobs. 
because like teams contract and go away and come back and it's just like they don't know where they're going to be that next year and it's just the whole thing is just crazy in the lack of stability but that's again that's that's nothing new and i think when you come when you come back rob maybe we'll get into that next time i'm always around every wednesday uh, (laughs) on the wide angle podium fantastic thanks thanks for doing this well thank you for having me bill criterium nation where where what is coming up what can people look forward to well we've got a couple of interesting shows i'm trying to work with uh, zach schuster to pick up on an idea that he had on the media pit about this uci in america versus what is truly elite in america versus a lot of the conversation that we were kind of shelving a little bit here so he's going to talk with me about that I have a 2021 preview episode that's going to be coming up featuring Celine Oberholzer and Alan Schroeder of Cyclocross fame, but also CS Velo fame. But, you know, coming up very, very soon is going to be an episode with the women of Levine Law Group talking about why they made the decision this year as a team not to race until they are vaccinated. All right. Look forward to all of that. There's an elegance to bike racing. For all its technology and engineering, it's a simple question of physics. How do you move a body through space as quickly and efficiently as possible? When the rider and the machine work as one, it's almost as if the solid world has melted away and all that remains is the spirit, the pure, raw, and unfiltered soul of sport. Life is measured in many units, miles, kilometers, kilos, and pounds. But we measure it one corner at a time. We've entered the golden age of crit racing, the most exciting spectator event in sport, where all of human drama plays out before us on our city streets. On this show, we bring you the news of the day and take you inside the personalities of the teams and riders and right up to the gates of the premier events in the world. Welcome to Criterium Nation. Criterium Nation.